I'm John Canzano. Did you know that John Wilner and I don't agree on everything? We give our week six picks, plus what Colorado should do in the wake of firing Carl Durrell, and our Heisman Trophy voting strategy unveiled. All of that and more on this episode of Canzano and Wilner, the podcast. What's better than one, John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. This is episode 13, lucky number 13 of the Kenzano and Wilner podcast. I'm not a superstitious person. Oh, maybe I am. Like, if I'm getting on an airplane and, and it has a row 13, I probably wouldn't feel good about sitting in it, but... It's episode 13, and you're here for it. Let's make it lucky 13. I'm John Canzano. You can read me exclusively at johnconzano.com. John Wilner, the great John Wilner, is here with me. Bay Area News Group, pac12hotline.com. We are also available at media outlets across the Pac-12 footprint. Uh, we got to start. I got to start before we get into the football, and there's plenty of news to talk about on that front. Uh, you had a great column this morning, johnconzano.com. Your daughter is a boxer and that just and she's six years old and i could not believe that how did that happen i don't know how it happened because nobody in our family boxes we didn't show her boxing we didn't we weren't in some sports bar and she looked up and saw boxing or mma fighting but she her name's sojourner we call her soji she's six she's uh, just to describe her i mean she's this this little kid who wears glasses and is, you know, cute as a button. You'd never think boxer looking at her. She just said one day, she goes, she goes, I want a box. And my wife and I looked at each other and we were like, okay, like we got to go find a boxing gym. And now, you know, I go and I watch her and they will uh, work on their punch and their combinations, their footwork, all this stuff. But I, you know, this is an example. Like I'm having a lot of fun writing at johnconzano.com, but this is one of these examples. Like I, I, I can write what I want when I want. This morning I just said, you know what? She asked me yesterday, we were in the kitchen, she's leaving for school, she's showing me that she's been working on the right hook, okay? So she's working on a hook or whatever, footwork, and so she's showing me this, she's shadow boxing in front of me. And again, she's got a bow in her hair, she's got glasses on, her, you know, she's, you know, scrunching her nose up, showing me how tough she is. And then she stops and she says, Wilner, she says, who's your favorite boxer, dad? And I don't know if somebody asked her that, or if she came out with that on her own. And immediately I go to like, I'm thinking about Muhammad Ali. I'm thinking about Joe Frazier. I'm thinking about, you know, Mike Tyson, Sugar Ray Robinson, Rocky Marciano. And, uh, you know, and I want to tell her all, all about all those boxers. But the answer I had for her was, you're my favorite boxer. Like, you're six years old for crying out loud. You're the only boxer that I know. So I don't know. It, I never boxed. My wife didn't box. Nobody mentioned it to her. She just decided one day. She wanted a box, and who are we to stand in the way of her dreams? Now, we don't necessarily want her sparring or, like, you know, having fights on the playground, but I will say this. There was a kid on her school who came up and pushed her, and she said to me after, I said, what'd you do? And she said, what do you think I did? She goes, I punched him. And I said, what? I said, okay. <laughs> you, I said, I don't know what you tell your kids, Wilner, but I said, okay, look, if somebody else— you know, comes up and pushes you or punches you. I said, you have my permission to hit back. The school's probably going to call me now that they listen to this podcast. But but uh, I said, oh, wow. I said, how did that go? And she goes, I guess he learned not to mess with a boxer. 
That's what she huh. said when she walked up the stairs. So that's awesome. So uh, some every kid yeah. on the playground has a plan until they get punched <laughs> in the mouth. That's right. That's it. But man, Muhammad Ali is like my favorite professional boxer. But Soji is my favorite amateur boxer. I'll, I'll settle on that one, man. And you got you got kids home this week. What's going on? I with, do. What, yeah, is, what is tough. happening? My, our school district is has uh, fall break, so both of my kids are home and. You know, it's not like the football season has stopped and you don't want them staring at a screen for 10 hours a day. So it's a little bit of a, it's a little scramble. I managed to take yesterday afternoon off without the Pac-12 dissolving uh, and take my son to the A's game. Of course, we went to the A's game because they were playing the Angels and Otani was pitching and he loves Otani. So that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, Being in the Coliseum, not very cool. But seeing seeing Otani was that was pretty cool. And now look, screen time's a big deal in our household. Three daughters over here. You've got your kids. Do you have rules on screen time? Because you know that comes up for every parent. I think I do have rules on screen time, and they are uh, I don't know. I'm like a Pac-12 referee. <laughs> you know, uh, I get it right sometimes, and sometimes I don't. Um, we we try to enforce it. We try, but it can be tough because you know all of a sudden I got something to do at work for work, and you know that hour bleeds into oh all of a sudden it's an hour and fifteen minutes. So you just do what the best you can, right? Yeah, because I think look that happened during the pandemic. Let's be real. We were we were probably those judgmental parents before pre pandemic where we would see like a family and the kids would be on devices in a restaurant. And we'd kind of look at each other and we'd judge them. But then the pandemic hit, and I think everybody put a device in their kids' hands, and it became like, you know, all right, all right, we're going to allow you to do this because, man, these what we what a lot of parents I think didn't realize was the schools were providing education, but they were also you know teaching our kids to do a lot of other things. They spent those, those teachers were spending a lot of time with our kids, and suddenly we were home with them, and now you are home. This isn't a spring break, this isn't a summer break. But you're getting uh, you're getting uh, this time with your kids. Good for you for not you know letting them jump on devices for eight hours. Well, I mean, you just you try and but it's it's uh, it's an uphill battle, right? Because that's that's their first instinct, and and it's my last instinct, and yet so we end up meeting in the middle, like fourth and one at the goal line, and uh, sometimes I keep them out of the end zone, and sometimes I don't. What did, what did you do as a kid? Because I was thinking about this the other day. I was telling my kids, I said, we didn't have no, we didn't have devices. I barely had video games. We had Pong. I had to explain to them what Pong was, you know, with the dot going back and forth on the screen. And, and, but I got to thinking like, what was I doing? You know? And I remember being alone with my baseball cards a lot. And I remember playing like a, um, a board game that was a baseball board game where I had to roll the dice. It was called long ball. And I had to fill out like a score sheet and I would score these tedious nine inning games between these teams. What did John Wil- young John Wilner do when he was squirreled away in his room? You know, I wasn't in my room that often. Uh, I was, I, we had a, an eight and a half foot basket and I spent a lot of time shooting baskets, dreaming of playing in the NBA, not realizing at that point that I wasn't going to be six, four. So uh, that, that dream died when I was about 11 or 12, but I, I spent a lot of time outside just yeah. playing around. And the thing is I would wander the neighborhood and go to the park and it was fine. And now, you know, I'm not sure I, you know, I'm not comfortable with my kids being at the park by themselves, right? It's a whole, you have a whole different mentality about your kids being out and about compared to where, what you were able to do as a kid, you know, 
30, 40 years ago. I also don't remember being bored. And I, like you, I was out in the backyard and I, w- I would play like a football game. And, you know, there was no neighborhood kids around. I would take the Nerf ball. I would throw it in the air and I'd reenact the whole game. And I was doing play by play and, and, you know, keeping stats in my mind. And, uh, you know, uh, lo and behold, I mean, I think I, I don't remember being bored. And, and kids today, they're all like, well, I'm bored. I do this. Entertain me. Like, I'm like, go outside. You, you know, we were never bored. Yeah, they don't have the same attention span. At least my kids don't. So it's tough. It's tough. But I, they got hooked on, yeah, they got hooked on screens during the pandemic. And it was okay because it was kind of an outlet for them, right? To not have to deal with, especially those first three to six months, you know. And and so that kind of got them got them hooked. And it's been hard to uh, to untangle that uh, relationship between them and the, and the screen. I'm with John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group. I'm John Canzano. We appreciate you guys listening to this podcast. Uh, We're on episode 13, as I mentioned, and we are going to talk about the picks here coming up in week six. But before we get to that, Wilner, let's talk a little bit about Carl Durrell, Colorado, Rick George, the athletic director. They've parted ways. Uh, we, We have talked some about that, but what is Colorado going to do with that hire? Man, they're in a tough spot, right? And this was easy to see coming. As soon as Herm Edwards was relinquished command of ASU a few weeks ago, Carl Durrell immediately moved on to the hottest seat in the conference. And, uh, you know, this was the perfect time, right? They came off another big loss, and they haven't won a game, and they had a bye week. So that's the time to make the change if you're going to do it in season. I don't know what they're going to do. They've got to figure out what they want to be. You know, they went after Durrell when Mel Tucker left them for Michigan state in February of 2020, they went after Durrell because they thought he represented stability, right? He was building a, he had a home in Boulder from his time coaching there, you know, uh, under Rick Neuheisel. And so then they go after and hire, they go hire Durrell and it just doesn't work out. He's not the right guy. He had been in the NFL for a long time and it was a bad move. And so, just doesn't work. Now they got to go back to the drawing board and decide if they want stability. What do they need? What's their play at this point? Yeah, I think a couple things. I always look for the correction. And I, and when I look at Carl Durrell, I see stability, but I also don't see a lot of energy. So I, I think the move for Rick George is to go with somebody energetic. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about age, doesn't have to be a young person, but just somebody with good energy. And I've seen a bunch of names throw out there and you know, Gary Patterson at Texas is interesting. He had a nice run at TCU. We know that we know that he can coach. He was 178 and 73, made 17 bowl games in his time there. It would definitely sort of bring them a tent pole. That would be a tent pole hire. I also think there's a chance that they go with somebody young and energetic, like Oregon did with Dan Lanning. Look at the coordinators at the schools that are sniffing around the playoff. And that's the advantage Rick George gets here as the AD at Colorado is that he can do what maybe some other schools can't do is he can watch now some of the coordinators at these schools that aren't like no brainer names. Like Dan Lanning came out of left field for Oregon. And, you know, I know that you've got Kenny Dillingham on Oregon's staff. If they continue to score 40 points a game, Dillingham might be a candidate at Arizona state. He might be a candidate at Colorado, but this is the advantage Rick George has is he can look at the teams that are playing in the playoff or sniffing around the playoff. And he can look at coordinators and, you know, does he go after an Alex Grinch, USC's D coordinator, who who has been in the conference? Uh, does he does he go after some young hotshot assistant from the SEC? Like, I think he gets that advantage here. 
I don't want to throw out too many names because I think there's some ball left to play here. Yeah. Well, and it's going to be interesting. They're, they are a little bit like Oregon in that they don't have a whole lot of in-state talent, right? There's not a great pipeline. The, most of the ta- the high-end talent in the state of Colorado is, is linemen, right? There's not a ton of speed. They got to go to Texas and they got to go to Southern California to get speed. So they need someone who can do that, right? Oregon has got a national brand now. They can go recruit Texas and LA and, and anywhere, Florida, right? Colorado isn't quite at that level. So how, how do they find somebody who is going to be able to go get players that, where you got to get on an airplane for a couple hours to get to Boulder, right? That's their biggest challenge. Utah has got in-state talent. They got a ton of great of linemen and they always have, right? And so they can build a system that is based on recruiting in-state players, right? A, a, a run-heavy physical style. Colorado doesn't have nearly as much in-state talent. And so they've got to figure out what, who's the coach who's going to be able to go get what we need, uh, you know, that's a plane right away and sell this place. And how are they going to pay? Where are they going to pay? They're not going to probably pay what Oregon's paying Lanning, right? So they've got a lot of decisions to make. And they, the one thing they do have, like you said, is they've got time, right? They got two months before they got to make a hire. A guy I'd want to talk to that, uh, that I thought about as you were talking there is Tom Herman. The former Texas coach, you know, he he's he's got success. He's got a bunch of top twenty-five finishes at Texas, and prior to that, you know, he he was at Houston, where he went twenty-two and four in two years. So you talk about a guy that could recruit the state of Texas. He was an offensive coordinator at Texas State and at Rice and Ohio State. Tom Herman might be somebody they want to talk with. Yeah, it could be. They got to make sure that the person is hungry, right? And sometimes you get in that you fall in that trap where you hire a. a somebody who's considered a good coach, but has been fired or is, you know, doesn't necessarily have that, have that juice and the drive that you're going to need at Colorado to rebuild this thing. So that's, that's the fine line, finding somebody who is hungry. And it may be that it's not someone who has been a head coach at the power five level. It may be somebody who's a head coach at the group of five level or a coordinator who's never been a head coach, right? Calderell did not have that, that energy, and they got to find somebody who does and is, you know, is willing to be able to go get on a plane and go get, you know, half their roster from from other states. Yeah, the guy at uh, University of Texas, San Antonio, pops into my head. Jeff Trailer as well. He was yeah. there. Uh, they were 12 and two last year. But if you want to I, I think the other thing is we all know, like as as journalists, we hate covering coaching searches. They're tough. It's a tough ask because there's a lot of unknowns, there's a lot of voices in the room, it's a big process, it's costly to the university. I can't imagine the athletic director at Colorado, after having gone through the Mel Tucker thing, then Carl Durrell, wants to have to do this again in two or three years or four years or whatever. So I, I think they're probably looking for stability and energy, those two things. Yep. Keep, keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> coaching hires coaching hires are the, the hardest thing to cover, except for realignment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the hardest thing to cover. Amen to that. Uh, let's uh, let's pivot a little bit on the Heisman front. Do you have a Heisman vote? I have a Heisman vote. Do you have one? I do. Yes, I do. Okay, so we're controlling like the entire West Coast uh, voting block here on the Heisman voting. How do you approach the Heisman Trophy vote in your process? Because I have a little different process. Boy, I, I to me, it comes down to playing your best on the biggest stage. And... So you got to be on a team that is contending 
and you got to perform well in those games for, to me, you know, and I certainly have a process where, uh, you know, the weekend that they're due, they're due on a Monday afternoon, right? The, it's the Monday after conference championships, the day after the bowl selection and playoff selection. And so I spend a couple hours at that point, you know, I'm tracking them through the season and then I get into that weekend. I get into the numbers and take a good hard look at how these, these guys are performing and how they performed in the, against the best opponents on the biggest stage. And to me, that that's a big part of the Heisman. How do you go about it? I agree with everything you're saying. I just, I don't like that ESPN and some other entities tell us from before the season, who the candidates are. I don't want that in my head. And it's hard to ignore it because you walk by a television set or you read something online or see something on Twitter, you see who these candidates are, or people are constantly sending you odds on who's going to win the Heisman. Because I think some of this stuff gets decided early on. Like we're told by some of the national media entities who the candidates are before the games have even been played. So I try to not pay attention to any of that. I try to block it out. If I see anybody's, here are the front runners for the Heisman, I, I look away. I don't want to see that. I don't want it in my head because I want to come to that realization as you see the top 25 at the end of the year, you know, the playoff rankings come out, and I'm looking at, like, the top 10 teams, and I'm going, okay, who are who is the MVP of each of these teams? And then I start to evaluate them. And I think it's why, like, there's a formula to winning the Heisman. You know, by and large, you're a running back quarterback, offensive player for a team that is in the playoff or right off the edge, the shoulder of the playoff. Those are your candidates, okay? And that's that's kind of what this award goes to. It's supposed to be the most outstanding college football player, but it often is just the best player on a team that's in the playoff or the, or the best offensive player on a team that's in the playoff. So I try not to listen to any of the noise, and then I will look at maybe the top 10 or 12 teams and go, okay, who is the MVP? Who wouldn't be in this category without player X? Like, who is that person, that catalyst for this team that has them here? And I think in some years you can see there's a player that without him, their team would be lost or they wouldn't. maybe they wouldn't be in the top 10. They'd be, maybe they wouldn't be in the top 20 without that player. That, to me, uh, you know, really starts to elevate players. And I know over the years um, there's some geography to this. I know the, the voters in the East tend to skew that way. The Southern voters skew that way. I think, you know, it's like uh, it's like they told us in Silence of the Lambs, you know, he covets what he sees. That's what they told Jodie Foster's character, <laughs> Buffalo Bill. You know, I think we do that as Heisman voters, too. We, we are there is a bias that we kind of gravitate towards what we see. And so I think being in the Pacific time zone, I tend to see more of the Pac-12 players and I tend to go, oh, gosh, like Cam Rising at Utah or Caleb Williams at USC. These guys, like, where would their teams be without them? And so I think they elevate a little bit on my poll, if I'm being being honest. Like, you know, we're all a little bit biased. But I don't want to hear from ESPN. I don't want to hear from anybody else. who's. I don't want to hear from the casinos who's who's the favorite and all that stuff because I want it out of my head. Well, but that's the exact problem the Pac-12 has, right, is five-sixths of the Heisman electorate is based – it's broken into six regions. And five-sixths of – five of those six regions – are east of the Mississippi or, you know, basically central time zone, right? The far west region is from the Dakotas to Hawaii. So uh, the Pac-12, the only way you can really contend if you're in the Pac-12 is you got to have a lot of support in those voting regions that are east of the Mississippi. And the only way to do that is to have name recognition and visibility, right? And the classic example 
Christian McCaffrey, right, breaks one of the greatest records in the history of the sport. Barry Sanders, all-purpose yards, still finishes second. One reason, 55% of his yards that year were in, in games that started at 10 o'clock or later on the East Coast. So, and that gets, you know, you keep drilling down on this, and certainly the Pac-12 Network's issue is a problem for the conference, but visibility is a huge part of it, and it's especially difficult for dark horse candidates, right? McCaffrey was on nobody's radar when that season started, and he didn't win, right? The, the only winner that in the last 50 years from the Pac-12 who didn't play at USC is Marcus Mariota, but he started the 2014 season as a favorite. And Oregon, what was Oregon that year? They were like preseason number one or two or something. Yeah. So he had all that preseason juice that helped carry him through. If you're playing in the Pac-12 and you don't have preseason juice, it's hard to have the visibility, unless you're at USC, it's hard to have the visibility and the name recognition to, to sway enough of the voters in those five other regions. Good point. I think a uh, big disadvantage to the Pac-12 conference. Obviously, there's some guys in it this year, but let's see what happens. I'm John Canzano. Read me at johnconzano.com. I'm with John Wilner, the Bay Area News Group, pac12hotline.com, at Wilner Hotline on Twitter. If you want to follow him, you should be following him uh, if you're not out of your mind. But let's pivot to the to the Week 6 games. Week 6 games coming up, important games, some big games. Wilner, let's start with Utah at UCLA, 12:30 on Fox. What happens there? Are you still on your your tremendous streak, by the way, of picking these games right? I am on a tremendous streak of picking the winners. I was five and one last week. I'm thirty five and nine for the season, just picking it straight. Should be betting the money line uh, against the spread. I'm only twenty three and twenty one, so I, I had a bad way. I had two and four last week against the spread, but uh, you know what? If you like a money line pick, I'm probably good for that. Uh, at least so far, knock on wood. But nice. Well, you start. You got there, okay. there's one game, right? There's one game that's fairly close to even. Utah, UCLA, right? Four, Utah uh, is a four and a half, four, four and a half point favorite. What do you think? I, I like Utah in that game. I think I think it's going to be tougher than a lot of people expected at the beginning of the year. I think we all know that UCLA at home right now, given what they did last Friday, that they're tough. They got a fifth year starter at quarterback in Dorian Thompson Robinson. That is a huge advantage for Chip Kelly. They're also playing at home with an extra day of rest. So I think Utah wins this game. I, I understand where the spread is, where it is. I've seen it at three and minus three and a half. I've seen it at minus four. I'm still going to take the Utes in this game. I think they win it. I think they win it by a touchdown. I like them 35-28 over UCLA. I think this is the biggest game UCLA has played under Chip Kelly, and it's certainly the biggest game of Dorian Thompson-Robinson's career. Right? They are undefeated. They are ranked. They have got a lot in front of them if they can win this game, right? I mean, Thompson is going to end up being – if they win and he plays well, he's going to enter that Heisman conversation, right? And if they win, they got an advantage over Utah, and they're in great shape uh, for the stretch run. They got a, I think they got a bye next week, then they go to Eugene. Huge game for UCLA. Uh, are they up to it? You know, I think it's going to be really close. I think they are very good on offense, right? I mean, they got a great – three-headed attack with Thompson Robinson, Zach Charbonnet, and Jake Bobo at receiver. And I have not quite seen Utah's defense play at the level of dominance that maybe it did the last half of last year. I think this game is going to be down to the wire, you know, could end up being a field goal game. And I'm, I think UCLA is going to get them. 
Oh, John Wilner picking the upset. Uh, Clark Phillips the third? No, he had three picks last week. How do I pick against that guy? But I, I, I get what you're saying about Utah's defense and their offense. Like, there's something a little off about them right now, and I think it's because they're kind of finding their way. They did it last season, too. Remember, they lost at Oregon State last season at about this point of the season, and then they just sort of pivoted and played great football down the stretch. I think yep. there is some some concern that they're looking ahead to, you know, two Saturdays from now they will play home game against USC. But I just I I believe in Kyle Whittingham. I trust Cam Rising and UCLA. Apologies to the Bruin fans listening. I just I haven't loved their schedule. Maybe Washington was a pretender. I'm picking Utah. You're picking UCLA. Let's see what happens. Let's move on. Washington's at Arizona State, 1 p.m., Pac-12 Networks. Do the Huskies rebound? Well, and do the Huskies win in Tempe for the first time since 2001? I mean, that is an incredible stat. Uh, they just never, for a variety of reasons, they have not played well there. This game is 1 o'clock. It's going to be hot. Um, and I, you know... I'm not sure that ASU's got what it takes to win the game because ASU's defense is not very good, and I think Michael Penix Jr. and the Huskies' offense is going to score some points. But I also think ASU's going to score on 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 Washington. And to me, you know, uh, it's a 14-point spread. I think that's too many points. Too many. Uh, I, I, I love uh, I love Arizona State to cover. I, I do, too. I think Washington wins this game. I have them winning by a touchdown. I think Washington does bounce back. I think, you know, they have the extra day. We played Friday night last last week. But I, I just I like Michael Penix Jr. in this game. And I watched I watched USC Arizona State and I thought Arizona State got some pressure on Caleb Williams last week. I think they'll get some pressure on Penix Jr., but I think he'll hurt him for it. You know, I I agree with you that fourteen points is too many. That's too heavy. Uh Washington to win, ASU to cover. Washington State's at USC, four thirty on Fox. I keep waiting for the Trojans to trip. They keep winning. All the USC fans out there, I don't blame you if you call me a hater. But I liked Caleb Williams last week. He was gritty. He took a lot of pressure. He played well. USC 5-0, and one of only two undefeated major college football programs that already have more wins this season than they did last season. Do you know the other? Uh, Arizona. Kansas. 5-0. and ah. 5-0 and Kansas. This one opened... At USC, minus 10.5 points. It's now sitting at minus 13. By kickoff, it might be 14. The public loves the Trojans. Why am I skeptical? I don't know, but I, I think USC wins. But I think Washington State's close in this one. I have it 31-28. Yeah, I think the Cougars have been undervalued all season by the public, right? And these, this is the two opposite ends of the spectrum here when you're talking about public and, and point spreads, right? SC always gets the gets the money washington state never gets the money the line is set to you know it takes into account all that the usc money coming in uh i think that this is much more like a you know eight point game and it's a nine point game and it's all the way up at 13 washington state's gonna have the best defense usc has faced those guys are gonna get pressure on williams they're gonna make him uncomfortable uh the question to me is washington state's offense right sc allows you know, a, a ton of yards per carry. You can run the ball on them. ASU ran the ball on them. Oregon State ran the ball on them. But the big thing is Washington State, Cam Ward cannot turn it over. If he doesn't turn it over, I think this game is going to be tight in the fourth quarter. If he does turn it over, 
then it, the the Cougars are going to have trouble staying staying with them. I keep I, I can't get the Oregon State game out of my head too, and I think you know Washington State has not run the football at least statistically. They th- they have a short pass game, but um, you know they've they've shown some fight in you know this. I, I just think 13, 14 points. It's just too many. I think Washington State's close. Oregon's at Arizona, six p.m. Pac twelve networks. Who do you like? I think the Ducks, uh, for all the trouble the Ducks have had in the desert over the years, ASU or Arizona, I think this matchup is a is a huge uh, lean towards Oregon. I think the Ducks actually are going to stomp them, which uh, probably is not going to be uh, a popular pick. You know, the line, what's the line, 13 or 14? Yep. Basically the same as the Washington ASU line. I think the Ducks are going to stomp them because I don't think Arizona can stop Oregon's running game. And I think Oregon's defense is going to force Jaden Delora into making some mistakes. And he, that guy can make a big play and he can make a big mistake, you know, in the next series. And I think Oregon's going to get enough pressure on him, get him out, get him uncomfortable, couple turnovers. And, and I, I don't think this game is going to be close in the fourth quarter for all the close games they've played in Tucson over the years. I don't think this one's close. Yeah. I have it 42, 27 Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe something like that. But I, I really like what, what Oregon's doing with Bo Nix right now. They, it feels to me like they, they, they know the last five, six weeks of the season are brutal and they know that they're going to have to be multidimensional and they're going to have to score. Now they're scoring 40 points a game right now, but they're now Bo Nix is running now. And Dan Lanning talked a little bit about, about it this week. They're letting him use his feet. They're letting him get out there and run. It reminds me a little bit of what the Oregon staff under Mario Cristobal did with Justin Herbert late in his college career. They just sort of said, okay, we know you can run, we're not as worried about losing you. We need to win. We need to get to the Rose Bowl. We need to win the Pac-12 championship. And they kind of just let him run a little bit. Bo Nix is doing that, and he's a really good athlete. He's got good feet. So I think, he, I think you know, Arizona has shown some life, like credit to that staff and Jed Fish, but they're in over their heads this week. And I think Oregon I think Oregon punishes them. Yeah, no, full credit. He's, he's done a really good job. And if Arizona ends up, you know, four and eight, five and seven, that's a huge improvement for them. And they got a ton of momentum. But th- to me, this is a, a next-level challenge given where Arizona has really improved. The receivers they have one of the best group of receivers in the co- in the conference, but they still are challenged on the lines of scrimmage. I mean, Colorado moved the ball on them. They have one of the worst run defenses in the country. Cal scored 49 points against Arizona and then only nine against Washington State the next week. I think Oregon is going to is gonna score at will in this one. And, you know, whether Knicks runs or not, uh, I don't think Oregon's going to have any trouble moving yeah. the ball. Yeah, it, it, keep an eye on, if you watch this game, keep an eye on Oregon's defensive speed. And I think, you know, that's really what I'm focused on is, like, I think Oregon's defense is, is faster, might be the fastest defense in the conference. And I keep an eye on that if you watch that game, if you tune into the Pac-12 Networks. Keep an eye on that because the last six weeks of the season, Oregon's going to get tested. They're going to play Washington. They're going to play Utah. They got UCLA coming. Uh, p- possibly, if they can get to Vegas, they'll get maybe they'll get USC or who knows. But I think that Oregon defensive team speed suddenly will be a factor down the stretch. Oregon State's at Stanford, 8 p.m. ESPN. David Shaw's lost nine straight conference games. Stanford joined the Pac-12 in 1918. They've never lost 10 straight conference games, Wilner. Do they set that ominous record this week? I, I Yeah, it's crazy. They haven't won a conference game since they beat Oregon the first Saturday of October last year in that controversial play in overtime, right? 
that is uh, incredible. If you had watched what Stanford was, you know, six, eight years ago under Shaw to where they are now, it is, uh, you know, night and day or day and night, really. I think that they're going to, they're going to get a win here just because I am, I am not sure what's going on with the Beavers at quarterback, right? I mean, I don't, Chance Nolan, he's got that neck injury. He wasn't playing well, didn't have confidence. I, I just, I think Oregon State is kind of at a, at a vulnerable spot right here. And Stanford is going to be very hungry and very motivated. They're at home. They've had a tough stretch. SC, Washington, Oregon, right in a row. Uh, I think this is going to be Stanford's best performance of the season, and they're going to get a win. It may be their last win, but I, I like the Cardinal here. I tell my kids that, you know, if you want to, you want, you know, trust, you got to earn trust. It's, I don't trust Stanford right now. I, I trust Oregon State's offense more than I trust Stanford. Now, Jonathan Smith told me this week that Chance Nolan was limited in practice and he had work to do to get on the field and get cleared to play. For that reason, I think we're going to see Ben Gulbranson at, at quarterback for Oregon State. I think he's going to get a full week of practice reps with the first team. I also think the coaching staff, if they watched film, they will have noted that the second drive of last week's game, they handed the ball off and they pounded the rock and they moved it on Utah. If you can run on Utah, you can run on Stanford. I think Oregon State is going to play a ground attack game in this game. Uh, for that reason, I would take the under, 56.5 points. The Beavers are a seven-point favorite. I don't know if I would touch that because I think it's a, you know that's about right. But I got Oregon State winning. I have it 28-20, but I think it could be a 24-17, a 24-21 game. It could be something like that. I just think, you know, David Shaw right now, they're reeling in Oregon State's quarterback problem. I think he would love to trade his problems for their problems right now because I think Oregon State's got a solution. I think they just need to run the ball and play good defense this week. So I have uh, I have Oregon State over Stanford. We disagree on that one. So I, and I yeah I've got UCLA. That's my you UCLA. could call it so, an upset. I got UCLA and Stanford both both winning. Okay. Um, we'll see. Uh, you know, it just seems like it's been chalk. The the favorites have won. There's been a lot of double digit favorites the last couple of weeks. There haven't been many upsets, and there's always upsets. So to me, we got to have we got to have one or two this weekend. There we go. John Wilner has called his picks. I've called mine. Uh, tweet at us at John Canzano BFT for me at Wilner Hotline for John Wilner. Give us your picks for the week. Who do you agree with? We'll be back with another podcast episode early next week, maybe with a guest. May, for definitely talking about what happens over the weekend. Uh, for John Wilner and myself, thank you for listening to this podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave us some feedback.